Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Our topic this month is the issue of false confessions. And my guest, Dr. Saul Kasson, who is Distinguished Professor of Psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and Professor Emeritus at Williams College in Massachusetts, was my guest last time. He's written over 200 articles, several textbooks and books, and pioneered the scientific study of false confessions for over 40 years. And he's written a new book called Duped, Why Innocent People Confess and Why We Believe Their Confessions. It just came out in late 2022. So I would encourage my listeners to listen to our prior podcasts, and we are going to continue speaking with Dr. Kasson. Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. Pleasure to be here. All right. So we spoke last time about a fascinating case, too, actually, um, Anthony Wright and also um, Marty Tankliffe. And now I want to move to a um, an opinion piece that you wrote that I read in the New York Times um, back in 2021, and it was called, It's Time for Police to Stop Lying to Suspects. So tell us a little bit more about that opinion piece, and what do you mean police lie? You did refer to this last time, but tell us, go a little deeper. Uh, police are permitted in the United States, and this is not the case in most other countries. But in the United States, police are allowed to lie about evidence to suspects. So when they accuse a suspect of a crime, they interrogate that suspect. That suspect denies, often provides alibis. The police will be permitted to lie about evidence. They might offer a polygraph, a lie detector test, and then claim that, it, that the suspect failed. They may say the suspect uh, uh, have their fingerprints on the murder weapon or the suspect was identified by a witness, or their alibi failed to confirm their whereabouts. Uh, they might claim to have surveillance footage, which I've seen in a number of recent cases. And all of that has an element of both making a suspect feel like they're trapped and have no choice but to cooperate. Co cooperate, I put in quotes, meaning confess, because police are claiming to have this mountain of evidence. And it has another effect. It cognitively, intellectually disorients them. It confuses them. How is it possible that police have this evidence when I didn't do this? At which point police sometimes let them lead them to believe that they simply have lost their memory or their consciousness. In any event, when you look back at the wrongful convictions based on false confessions in history, the false evidence ploy is everywhere to be found. Now, when I've surveyed police, my colleagues and I surveyed hundreds of police officers in North America, it's a sparingly used tactic, but it appears everywhere in the archives of wrongful convictions. And so it's clear from research in psychology over the, literally 100 years, and specifically with regard to confessions over the last 25 years, that when you lie to people about evidence, you can confuse them. You can lead them, coerce them into confessing to things they didn't do, and you can lead them to believe sometimes that they actually did it. So the evidence is clear, and there isn't any dispute within the psychological community. But 
1969, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on a case and said it's okay that the police lied about the evidence and that doesn't put innocent people at risk. That was 1969. Since then, the Innocence Project has been founded. The National Registry of Exonerations has been founded. We have learned so much, thousands of wrongful convictions later, but the Supreme Court has not readdressed that issue. And um, the courts have not addressed it. So it remains permissible. I wrote that article in 2021 because New York State was contemplating a bill that would ban police deception. And that would have been the first state. That did not happen because COVID struck and everybody got distracted by everything. But I am happy to say at the moment, since 2021, five states have enacted a ban on deception in the case of juvenile suspects. Three more are about to take effect. And four or five additional states are talking about that issue right now. So it is conceivable we're going to have double-digit numbers of states by next year that will ban deception in cases involving minors. Now, I have to say that compromise is, it's okay, but the honest truth is lying about evidence puts adults at risk too. But certainly, to me, with regard to children, it's a no-brainer. Uh, Because adults are compliant, children are more compliant. Adults are suggestible, children are more suggestible. Um, Children uh, don't have comprehension of their Miranda rights. Objective tests show that adolescents relative to adults don't appreciate their rights and how to implement them. And perhaps most importantly, just go back over the archives. I mean, Anthony Harrison, Ohio, was 12 years old when they got him to confess. Tyler Edmonds in Mississippi was 13 years old. Uh, you know, Michael Crow in San Diego was 14 years old. I can go on and on and on. The numbers of these stories, and in every one of these instances, there was a lie about evidence or multiple lies about evidence that precipitated their confessions. So the fact that that's happening. Now, I should mention, in 2022, I wrote another op-ed for Time. Only this time... I was accompanied by seven law enforcement experts, police chiefs, retired detectives, an NCIS investigator, an Air Force investigator who has interrogated terrorists over the course of his career. And they all agree. They say lying puts innocent people at risk and it's not necessary to do the work. And you lose the faith and trust of the public when you lie. And so they've agreed. This is not just the academics versus the practitioners. There are increasing numbers of practitioners now who agree you shouldn't be allowed to lie about evidence. Yeah. And what makes those lies so devastating is the average person doesn't know they're allowed to lie. And so when police say we have surveillance footage, you think, well, they they know they've got it. I, I guess I did it. I'm sorry. That should not be a permissible tactic. And most countries, most countries know that. Um, a case in point in your from your book, there were so many, um, hard to pick out a few, is George Whitmore's, uh, which goes back to 1963. He was 19 at the time. And then along with that, they're very different cases. The um, 
Central Park Five, who are now known as the Exonerated Five. Those, those they particularly are classic teen cases, right? Yes, so yes. Can you yeah. speak about those two yeah. cases? Yeah, and you know what they have in common? I mean, the George Whitmore <clears throat> is actually a classic historic case because when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Miranda to provide people with their rights to silence and counsel, and that people have to be informed and they must knowingly and intelligently voluntarily waive those rights. Um, the Supreme Court cited the George Whitmore case from three years earlier. Whitmore's case was devastating. When you look back on it, Whitmore, there, 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 were, there was a high profile pairing of murders known as the, uh, the career girl murders is what it was being called in New York. And Whitmore gave a sixth gave, I put in quotes, allegedly gave a 61-page confession, vividly detailed, detailing the chronology of, of getting into there, what he did, getting out of the scene, crime scene. Long story short, he wasn't even in New York City at the time. So he gave a 61-page confession filled with accurate facts about the crime that closed the case but he was shortly thereafter exonerated because it turns out he was in the South shore of New Jersey at the time, ironically watching Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, which was the day that that happened. Um, and he was with others. So that's the George Whitmore case. Um, the Central Park Five, like Whitmore, illustrate this problem. Those kids were 14, 15, and 16 years old. There were five of them. When I first saw that case, 1989, I was already tuned into the concept of a false confession. Others were very skeptical, but even I, looking at that case, thought, wow, one false confession, maybe, two, three, five false confessions, four on tape, and this is not in some back alley of some small town when no one is watching. This is Manhattan, and the whole world was watching. So I was puzzled. Something about these confessions didn't make sense to me. Everything was disturbing about them, but it was even hard for me to get past what I was seeing. They were convicted on the basis of those confessions. Now, you know what most people don't realize? They were, they were exonerated in 2002. So they were convicted in 1989 of the jogger rape and uh, 1990, and were exonerated in 2002. People think they were DNA exonerated. People think that in 2002, DNA evidence came along, unpreviously un known, and exonerated them. That's not what happened. Here they are. They, the, the, the rape took place in the spring of 1989. Their confessions are taken. Four of them are on video for all of us to watch. And they were tried in late 1989, 1990. But before their trials, there were rape kits. There was a rape kit taken. And there were several semen samples taken from the victim and the crime scene and her clothing. And those results came back from the FBI lab before trial. The results excluded all of them. And that was known. That was known to the prosecutor when they decided to, re to try them anyway. It was known to the judge who admitted the confessions. It was known to the jury who heard about it at trial. And there was a classic case where confession evidence showed itself to be so powerful that it trumped the DNA evidence. Amazing. The DNA excluded them and they were convicted anyway. 
What happened in 2002 is they were convicted because Mateus Reyes stepped forward from prison, a serial rapist, and said, I did it, and I did it alone. And when the Manhattan DA's office went back over the rape kit DNA, it was his. Mm -hmm. He knew things that no one else knew that turned out to be true about the crime. So we knew that it was him. But the, the Central Park jogger case is bother, bothersome for so many reasons, not the least of which is we saw their confessions for 20 to 25 minutes each on video. But you know what we didn't see? The, the interrogation, right? Exactly. How did those confessions come about? We have no idea. <laughs> and that became the impetus for the first set of, of, of laws that had to change, which was to require the recording of interrogation from start to finish. No exceptions, right. no excuses. Yeah, that, that's critical. That is so critical. Um, speaking of um, recording uh, interrogations, tell us a little bit about the read technique, which is often involved in questioning a suspect. The read technique is the classic psychological approach to interrogation that has been used in the United States. So it, it used to be the case that police used to be early, late 19th century, early 20th century, that police would often take confessions through physical force and, and, and torture. And uh, finally, in the 1930s, the U.S. Supreme Court said they would no longer accept confessions coerced through physical means. Uh, and so a psychological alternative had to come up, and a number of books were written about how to get suspects to confess. The re-technique comes along in the 1940s, 1950s. In 1962, they write their first manual. And the technique is based on the idea that first we interrogate, we get a suspect, uh, but first we, we interview that suspect, a non-confrontational interview, which enables us to determine if that suspect is lying or telling the truth. That's the interview phase. If that suspect, we believe that that suspect is telling the truth, the suspect goes home and that's the end of that. If the suspect we believe to be lying, then that suspect moves on to the next stage, which is the interrogation. The goal of which is not deception detection, but confession. The problem with the read technique begins with that first interview stage. They claim and they train uh, investigators to believe that they can determine when someone is lying or telling the truth by asking a number of questions and then sitting and watching the the, the suspect's nonverbal and verbal reactions to those questions. So they're examining behavior. They're examining demeanor. They're looking at and advising to investigators to pay attention to, does the, does the suspect lose eye contact? Does he start to look away when you ask the question? Does the suspect start to freeze in place? Something about posture. Start to fidget, turn away from the investigator. All of those are seen as cues indicating deception. Well, that's great, except those cues don't work. And there are hundreds of social psychology studies over the years that show those cues don't indicate deception. They may indicate a person who's anxious, but they don't indicate deception. And of course, if you're in a police station being questioned about a crime, whether you did it or not, you're anxious. So the re-technique, that first interview stage, 
unless they are excellent at lie detection, they're bringing a whole lot of people in, they're, they're shifting a whole lot of people into their interrogation who are innocent. And now the goal of an interrogation is to produce a confession. And so that's part of the problem with the read technique is the interview stage does not produce diagnostic outcomes. And the research on that is clear. Uh, now you get into the interrogation and this is a confrontational process. The, 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 it's a nine step process. The opening salvo of which is, we know you did this, stop lying to us. It's an accusation stated with certainty. And if the suspect issues denials, you stop that suspect in their tracks and you proceed to present the evidence that you have that supports the accusation. The evidence may be true. If not, you're free to lie about the evidence. While I talked about these enlightened law enforcement investigators who joined me in an op-ed in the time, whose commentaries say we shouldn't be doing this, we shouldn't be lying about evidence, uh, the, the purveyors of the Reed technique continue to stand by that tactic. The other, alongside the confrontational process, which is designed to break a suspect down uh, so that the suspect feels the futility of continued denial, the other goal is then to make confession more easy. So in a sense, the theory of the read technique is that we're trying to increase the anxiety associated with denial and decrease the anxiety associated with confession. How do you make it easier to confess? You suggest that if you cooperate with us and if you, if you give a statement, maybe the consequences won't be so bad. And so there are a number of tactics in the read technique that we have called minimization tactics. They call them themes, minimization themes, where the, the, the suspect now is, again, faced with, faced with uh, very little options left. And the interrogators suspect, uh, suggest, you know, maybe you didn't do this on purpose, or maybe maybe you were provoked, or maybe this was an accident, or maybe your friends put you up to it, or maybe you were seduced, or, uh, or you know, provoked, or whatever. And so there are a number of moral justifications, face-saving excuses that make it sound like maybe this is no big deal. If you know the case of Brendan Dassey of making a murderer. 16-year-old, Brendan, this is about your uncle. You didn't do this. Don't worry about it. You didn't do this. Brendan is assured that he's not to blame for this. In fact, at one point, his interrogators say just that. Brendan, you're not to blame for this. This is not your fault. And so by the time Brendan cooperates and confesses, he is led to believe. Now, the promise isn't made. They're not, they're not saying to Brandon, oh, by the way, you give us a statement and you can go home. We're done. But that's the implication. And so we've done this research and others have done this research. When people hear these minimizing remarks, maybe your friends put you up to it. Maybe this you had too much to drink. Maybe you were provoked. Maybe it was an accident. They infer leniency upon confession. They're off the hook, right? They're off the hook. Right. So you got me on the one hand, you've cornered me. On the other hand, you're giving me an escape hatch. Right. I may as well confess. The Brendan Dassey case is the most 
elegant because we see this on video. He, they bring him to the point after telling him it's not his fault that he agrees to confess to his involvement in a murder. And within minutes, he's looking at his watch and saying, I have a school project this afternoon. Am I going to get back to school in time? Talk about not getting it. Or maybe he did get it. Mm-hmm. That was the inference was that where do I go once I'm done here? Where do I sign and how can I get out of here? And that's common. The Central Park Five defendants, they were surprised when they were handcuffed and arrested. Each one thought they were cooperating, implicating the others, and that they'd go home afterwards. Yeah, yeah, Um, We have about five minutes left. I I wanted just to read something that you wrote, which really is incredible, that confession is more powerful when it comes to the jury than an eyewitness and you cite the case of Amanda Knox. I'm sure there's so, so many others. Um, why, why is that so? You know, legal scholars have known for years that confession has this bewitching double quality. It is on the one hand, no doubt, the most powerful evidence to appear in court. It is potent. That was the first discovery I made in 1980. The first time I published a paper with the word confession in it, it was in 1980. And my interest was in juries and confessions because juries can't see past confession evidence, no matter what. And so it has this bewitching quality where on the one hand, it is potent, it is sufficient for conviction. It is, and in some of my studies, more powerful than eyewitnesses, more powerful than character testimony, in many cases more powerful than DNA itself, as in the Central Park Jogger case. It doesn't matter if it's contradicted by other evidence. It doesn't matter if it's given by a child. Confessions are powerful. And yet, the courts have always known that they are fallible as evidence. And they are fallible as evidence because sometimes they're fabricated by law enforcement authorities and they're not authentic. And sometimes they're simply coerced and not voluntary through the process of interrogation. And so they can't always be trusted. The, the, the problem with confessions is that juries overbelieve them. Now, the question is why, and this is what you're asking. It's not just juries, by the way, it's judges and everybody else. This is not a jury specific problem. The problem with confessions is, first of all, common sense. (laughs) One of the first questions I always ask when I give a talk is, would anybody ever confess to a homicide they didn't commit? And of course, everybody looks at me like I've got two heads. Of course not. Of course not. You'd have to put a gun to my head. (laughs) And, And so, first of all, everybody believes I would never confess to a crime I did not commit. Well, yes, you would. But that belief that I wouldn't do it becomes everyone's baseline anchor point against which they judge others. No, if, if he had, if he had not done that, he wouldn't have confessed. And so people by common sense, and by the way, it makes sense, right? As a matter of common sense, we know that people tend to do and say things in their own self-interest, not counter their self-interest. So it makes sense as a matter of common sense to trust confessions at the outset. The problem is, We don't then scrutinize those confessions given the circumstances under which they were taken. 
And this is actually some pretty basic social psychology. People always, when they, when they watch someone do something, they immediately jump to the conclusion that it reflects who that person is. And the fact that they may have been influenced by the surrounding situation, we're, we tend to be oblivious to that. So right out of the gate, common sense dictates that we believe confessions, but now there's more. And I think the most startling statistic about confession evidence is this. 94% of proven false confessions, proven false confessions, in other words, the confessor was innocent, wasn't involved, doesn't know a thing about that crime. 94% of those confessions contain facts about the crime that are spot on accurate, that were not known to the public. And often they're precise and they're vivid. The victim was wearing pink shoes and a heart necklace with a broken, I mean, the kinds of details that are, I, I broke in through the window, left the window a third the way open. I smoked five cigarettes, Marlboro cigarettes. I left four of them in the ashtray. All of those, when the crime scene was examined, were absolutely correct. Those are the kinds of facts that appear in false confessions. So when I have done jury research, I've heard juries deliberate, mock juries deliberate, and they say things like, well, okay, I, I, I get, he says he didn't do this, he says he was coerced, I can see that, but then how did he know those things? Right. And so problem number two is not just common sense, but the confessions contain evidence of guilty knowledge. And that evidence of guilty knowledge was fed to them through the process of interrogation, which we didn't get to see because it wasn't recorded. We are just about out of time. I, that was something I wanted to close with is the remedies. And certainly the main one, as you have already uh, underlined, is to record all interrogations and that the camera should show both the suspect and the interrogator, not just the suspect. Yes. And to ban lying, you know, that, that too, and the promises of leniency. So those that we, we want to try to finish on an up note that these are the, the approaches to changing this. I, I certainly hope so. So um, I wanted just to tell my listeners that the next time, thanks to Dr. Kasson, we have three fascinating guests, Johnny Hincapier, and his two lawyers, Gabriel Harvest and Barry Fett, talking about a very high profile case going way back to 1990 in New York City subway. And thank you so much for introducing me to these three. They will be on next time. Thank you so much for giving us your precious time, Dr. Casson. I really appreciate it. and know my listeners will as well. It's a thank pleasure. you again. Thank you for listening and thank you, doctor, for being here. Um, this is Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. I'm Harriet Hendel. Thanks for listening.